Welcome to the Women in Government podcast. Whether discussing important issues or policies of the day, this is a place where lawmakers and decision makers unite to get the conversation started. Hi, I'm Women in Government Executive Director Meredith Martino. We empower women state legislators. For those of you who are new to us, We're an organization that brings together state legislators and stakeholder experts with broad perspectives and experiences to amplify the work of female lawmakers. Our all-legislator bipartisan board of directors guides meaningful policy programs that directly address issues facing state legislators nationwide. You're about to hear an important discussion that means a lot to me and many others who have been working together to address major workforce challenges and barriers to employment for workers with mental health conditions. By the end, I hope you're inspired and motivated to take action because as you'll come to find, Mental Health Matters, which so happens to be the name of this episode. I'm happy to say the host of this important chat is one of our board members, Colorado Representative Daphna Michelson Janae. Over to you, Representative. Thank you, Meredith. We've learned a lot over the past few years, especially about our nation's resiliency and ability to come together in times of crisis. However, we continue to uncover the hard truths about some people who regularly suffer and live with disadvantages based on their overall health and well being. One area of interest that's certainly capturing our nation's attention and Meredith highlighted is mental health. As it has been reported, more than 50 million Americans live with a mental health condition and over half of adults don't receive treatment. When we think about those numbers, it's likely you and I know someone who is considered a statistic. That's incredibly difficult to think about and even harder to say. This episode is about how we can change that by prioritizing mental health in our states and at the local level. Joining me to discuss why mental health matters is Arkansas Representative Deanne Vaught. Hello, Representative. Hello there. We also have Oklahoma Representative A.J. Pittman. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to continue to work with women in government and seed on these types of projects. Before we get started, I want to thank everyone who's listening. And if you want to learn more, visit womeningovernment.org. We've come to find that untreated mental health conditions can negatively impact employee performance, rates of illness, absenteeism, accidents, and turnover. People often quit their jobs and some may entirely drop out of the workforce. This doesn't just hurt our country on the human level, but there are other consequences like a smaller tax base, a reduced workforce, and increased social expenditures for state and local communities. For all these reasons and many others, SEED, the State Exchange on Employment and Disability, launched the Mental Health Matters National Task Force to develop a series of frameworks to help state and local policymakers craft and adopt policies to promote the inclusion of people with mental health conditions in the workplace and bolster the behavioral health workforce. It's made up of four areas, non-discrimination, parity and benefits, workplace care and supports, underserved rural, racial, and ethnic communities, behavioral workforce shortages, and crisis service systems. Representative Vaught, which group do you belong to, and can you tell us a little bit about its focus and priorities? So I was co-chair on the underserved racial, ethnic, and rural communities. 
I feel as though we had a very broad topic to cover because we touched so many facets in the state as rural. And I think a lot of people don't understand how rural, underserved, and ethnic groups are truly suffering whenever it comes to mental health and the service that they're being able to get. You know, you have people who can't show up to work because they're in a crisis, but you also have the fact that they don't have services available in those rural, ethnic, racial areas. We found, and we talked a lot about how black and brown communities suffer the most because of the lack of service that they have, whether it is having to go to emergency rooms instead of actually being able to go to somewhere where they could visit with somebody two or three times a week and get themselves healthy. We feel like that is crucial to getting the United States well is figuring out the access problem for these areas. Excellent. Representative Pittman, you're part of the Behavioral Workforce Shortages and Crisis Service Systems Subcommittee. What were your areas of focus? Yes, it's so interesting that they put me on the workforce shortage subcommittee. I am normally on the one with Representative Bott. I'm normally on the racial inequity as a African-American and Native American female who represents a large minority community in Oklahoma. That is one of my passions. But to be able to be on the behavioral health workforce shortage subcommittee, it opened my eyes to why we are supporting economic development initiatives and workforce shortages. I know that that is a buzzword throughout our state throughout our country as we see the effects of COVID-19, but some of the scope of our subcommittee and some of the things that we focused on are understanding the current workforce pipeline in the state and identifying opportunities to improve the pipeline by increasing the role of community colleges, student loan forgiveness programs, campaigns, and increasing compensation creating clear pathways for all types of positions from telehealth to peer support specialists, examining the barriers for behavioral health professionals, including licensing requirements and portability, populations that are restricted, such as reentry or justice-involved populations, continuing education, training, and certification barriers. We also were looking at identifying better ways to collect data on the workforce, including diversity measures and entrance to professions. So looking at how underserved communities can get there, how people who have been just as involved can get involved with the mental health community, how we create a pipeline for young people to come into this. We see a lot of young people who are dealing with mental health within that family, who are dealing with mental health due to social media, bullying as they experience gun violence in our country. And so how do we shape and give them opportunities to move beyond those experiences, heal, but also introduce them into a career pathway to help someone else heal and recover from social emotional issues that they've gone through very similar to this. So those are some of the things that we talked about in our workforce subcommittee. We want to recognize the change in nature of the workforce and the role peer support specialists, behavioral health crisis service systems, and resource support systems for essential workers play in the workforce currently now after our pandemic. That's a lot of work. 
I'm part of the Workplace Care and Support Subcommittee, where we worked on things like how do we create behaviorally healthy workplaces? What does that look like to be able to come to work and be open and transparent about behavioral health matters and not fear that you're going to lose your job or be replaced in your position. The other things that we are talking about are how do we create places that create mentally healthy workforces? What does it look like to have the support you need in the workplace? What does it look like to have access to the appropriate times off when you need times off? So it's been a really interesting conversation and hearing what you all have been working on has been very inspiring. Representatives Pittman or Vaught, both of you bring unique professional and personal experiences to your jobs and to this discussion. How do these experiences inspire you to address behavioral health policy in your state? Representative Vaught. Okay. I think we still have a very large group of individuals who still don't understand mental health or they think it's still not real. And it's getting to those people and getting them to realize we are truly still in a pandemic whenever it comes to mental health. If we can't get healthy people, then we can't have healthy workers. I am living proof that mental health is real. I've lived through my own crisis. I'm very thankful that God saw me through to the other side and that he's able to use me now in this position to be a voice for those that don't have a voice. I think this working group even helped grow that voice even more. Things that I had never thought of or thought about in mental health realms actually helps me come back to my state and try to address those things even within my state. But I do believe after COVID, I think that opened a lot of people's eyes to how truly bad mental health issues are in our states and what are we going to do to fix it. That's one of the reasons Arkansas started our mental health working group was to start building bridges between cities and counties and schools and sheriff offices and the judges and bring everybody to the table so that we can figure out together how to move all of our states forward. And that's kind of what this working group did for me. It helped me realize some things that I need to come back to my state on and work on those issues. That's great. Representative Pittman? If I can say this, um, Representative Bot shared her amazing story at our first meeting as one of our first speakers, and the audience was in tears. I'm getting chills right now just talking about it. And so kudos to her for being vulnerable, for taking this issue and championing it, for sharing her story, for us for seed creating a safe space for her to be able to do that and for the participants for using that story and for using her sharing that with us as one of the catalysts to do this work. This work is so important as we look at communities. As I said before, I represent a majority religious African-American community, but I identify as an African-American and a Seminole Native American female. So Ishtango to my Native American people who are listening. But this is so important for me because representing both of those communities, we have generational traumas that keep us from accessing health care, especially mental health. 
we still have stigmas within our community. We still are dealing with cultural wars within our community, within our nation. And so all of those things are compounding on mental health. But as we talk about young people, I was elected at 24 in the legislature and made history by being the first millennial to be elected in my seat in the state of Oklahoma. And so when we talk about accessing it for young people and destigmatizing it so that we can continue to have these robust conversations and we can prepare young people not only to be productive members of society and be able to show up as their whole selves in this space, but also prepare them for the workforce. When we make legislation, we cannot just think about right now. We have to think about the generations coming behind us because those are the people that are going to be the leaders of tomorrow. I was once that little girl looking at my mom who was a state senator and a state representative, and I knew I could do her job because I saw it. And that's one of the reasons why I'm here. But if we don't teach young people and allow them to see us heal, allow them to see us move forward, allow us to see us make mental health a priority, it will continue to be a stigma on our country. It will continue to be something that we sweep under the rug in our family. It will be something that we continue to whisper about at our jobs when we say someone is having a bad day and it really is more than that. Until we normalize getting help, until we normalize talking about it and we create access for people to not only receive the help, but to also learn from what they've gone through and then get them in this workforce pipeline, we are going to continue to be in the country that we are in, where it is something where mental health is one of the number one issues that we are facing in each and every state. This is not an Oklahoma problem. This is not an Arkansas problem. This is not a Michigan problem. This is a national crisis. And we must do better as we continue to legislate so that we can prepare the next generation to handle and tackle these issues. Absolutely. And I also want to commend Representative Bott for sharing her story and Representative Pittman for bringing up the concept of stigma. Through the work of you, Representative Bott, we will continue to fight down stigma one step at a time, as well as you, Representative Pittman. I wanted to highlight that a lot of care was taken to ensure these groups were made up of diverse range of perspectives across geographic, political, and racial ethnic backgrounds and those with lived experiences. The task force is made up of 35 state policymakers and government officials from 26 states. As we know, our states differ in terms of mental health. However, we have a lot in common. We're all facing a major challenge ensuring the behavioral health needs, that's including mental health, and substance use disorders of employees are being met for people with pre-existing conditions and for those with new mental health needs brought on by the pandemic. Representative Pittman, we appreciate the overview of your subcommittee's work. What are some of the key findings and major takeaways? Ultimately, how can your group's work benefit others and help encourage mental health providers to enter or remain in the profession? Our subcommittee identified four main principles or bucket list items. We were in the room, just to give you a visual, we were in the room with kind of those big sticky sheets and we would stick them on the wall and they would not stay up. But everyone got to input their ideas. Everyone got to really, really 
work and we sat around a big table and we put tables together and we had snacks and it was almost like that late night study session with your friends where we really broke down what can be some of these main principles what can be some of these bucket lists so number one is improved data quality transparency and availability that's super big because it's almost like history you can't know where you're going until you know where you came from and so if we don't have the data we can't know where we're going so one of those pillars up under data is to break down data silos example with mous between agencies and those things we need to be able to share data if the healthcare department has certain data that the department of mental health substance abuse has that dhs has how do we share that data through those state agencies so that we're all understanding the same data and working from that identify a trusted entity to house the data whether that be a new agency or one that's already there develop resources and tools to ensure consistent data collection and whether that's a summary, a survey, whether that's through a phone, whether that's a survey monkey and we're emailing it out or however we have to get it, but identify a trusted entity to house the data and consider data and metrics we don't already have. So what are we looking for? We obviously know age, race, social economical class are a lot of the data entry points, but what else are we looking for? What else that we have not collected before that we can include that better gives us information? Number two of our four points are strengthen and diversify high quality behavioral healthcare education and training pathways. And I think that's self-explanatory as we talk about, we have to expose and have more training pathways to get people into our healthcare profession as the workforce subcommittee. So we've talked about early exposure to the career. I ran a bill this year, House Bill 2513, that is Handle With Care. And the Handle With Care program basically says that when a student comes in contact with an officer or with emergency personnel, that personnel has to send a note to the school saying handle that child with care if it was a traumatic situation. Well, taking that and then exposing those students who we need to handle with care to these career pathways so that they can help people like some of those counselors and some of those behavioral health specialists and peer specialists have helped them. Developing apprenticeship pathways as visible alternative to traditional pathways. That's a big thing for me. I did not have a college degree when I ran for office and I am able to do the policy work. A poli sci professor probably would have hated me, but I am still able to do policy because I grew up around it. I knew it. I watched it. I breathed it. It was in my household for all of my life. And it's something that I knew. But creating apprenticeship pathways, how do we get the early exposure and then get a program into a tech center or get it somewhere where we are introductory, allowing these students and allowing these young people or even people going back into the workforce to have new training education programs. Have credit transferability between community colleges and universities. We know that's very important as something that we see a lot of people starting out at community colleges and not everything is transferring. So how do we do that and create partnerships between community colleges and universities? advancing students on pathways and advising them and advocating for them as they figure out, okay, here are the universities and the schools 
that have scholarships to come into this workforce. Here are the agencies that take those jobs after you get out of college, really advising students on their options. Number three, remove barriers to entry into the mental and behavioral healthcare workforce. So as we talk about licensing, as we talk about immigration, as we talk about loan reimbursement and other financial support, as we also talk about overall access to how do you get in this field and what way can we share with you that you can come into this field and where's your entry point? Number four, last but certainly not least, is to increase retention by supporting workforce, well-being and resilience. We know behavioral health jobs are hard and they're heavy. It is not an easy job to listen to people dump on you and to share everything. And that person has to have an outlet as well. And we have to give them trauma education. We have to give them things that will retain them. So whether that's bonuses, whether that's, like we said, loan reimbursement, whether that's other peer support, whether that's job quality, and how do we avoid burnout? That was one of our big things. This job can burn you out. How do we get more pay into the job? And so really looking at the scope of how we increase retention within the workforce. And so our goal overall as a subcommittee was to bolster the behavioral healthcare workforce and address workforce shortages, encourage people from underserved communities to enter the field and adequately staff and expand crisis services. And we felt like these four main points would really help that. And it would help everyone, not just the people that are currently in this work, but everyone we're trying to get in the work to help these patients and really improve mental health access, but also mental health treatment throughout our country. What an amazing list. As the three of us know, state and local policymakers are well positioned to develop inclusive and equitable policies and practices that address workers' mental health needs. These types of workplace supports increase employee retention and help boost morale. This helps more people strive for and get within reach of their goals and overall success in employment. Representative Vaught, We'd love to hear about your subcommittee's work and how it can help those whose livelihoods are affected by a mental health condition. Can you tell us more about the unique needs of those with mental health conditions living in rural areas? It's amazing that Representative Pittman just took away back everything I had written down because we all have those same issues in each one of our groups. As I was saying earlier, there is a couple that she didn't touch on. So when you talk about your underserved, racial, ethnic, rural communities, and you talk about providers, you know, a lot of people want to go straight to telehealth. Well, in those areas, they're also underserved in internet services. So you're not just talking about physicians not being there, but you're also talking about them not having access to any internet where they can get those services still. So we also talked a lot about how to get better internet access to the rural underserved areas, also how to get more people to want to go to those areas to serve those constituents that live in those areas. It's not an easy task. A lot of people don't necessarily like the rural way of life. And usually rural does mean underserved areas. And a lot of our ethnic groups do live in those rural areas. But we also talked about the stigma. And how do you get past that stigma in your workplaces or in your communities? 
and how we felt that we needed to get local government also involved in the talks so that they can be aware of ways in which they can help locally bridge those gaps where they're not there anymore. And stigma is a huge issue still in 2023, which I think it should not be anymore, obviously, because I'm sharing my story. But it's also the people that live in those underserved, rural, racial, ethnic areas usually are very prideful. Maybe we don't want to admit that we're having an issue or that we have problems. We've probably all been taught, you know, pull your boots up, dust your tail in off and go again tomorrow. Those type of things don't necessarily work whenever you're talking about somebody who's in a mental health crisis. Something else that I think we as legislators or city council members or court members might need to remember is sometimes we put rules and regs out there that continue to hurt access in our areas. She brought up peer support a minute ago, and we talked about this in our group. I was like, yes, I was so excited to hear peer support until it said you had to have a peer supervisor within 50 miles. That is unattainable. If you live in rural America, that's not always going to be accessible to have that supervisor. And I was like, did somebody just pull that mileage out of the sky and come to find out they kind of did, but no one thought ahead. They don't think about how it's going to affect those underserved rural communities in our states. 50 miles is not attainable. That should have been less mileage if we're going to use peer support, which I highly love the idea of. But that's just a few things that we talked about in our group. Again, Representative Pittman did a great job of giving the layout for me because we talked about a whole lot of what they talked about also. And I loved your additions, Representative Vaught. So my group talked a little bit about infrastructure, incentives, training and technical assistance as kind of the three ways that we can approach creating behaviorally healthy workplaces. So let's talk about incentives briefly. What does it look like to create a workflow that allows for mental health days at work? Could we incentivize that for a company? And for training and technical assistance, how do we train HR departments and managers to work with employees that might have mental illness. And this also is going to get back to the stigma element because we won't be able to communicate about our mental illness unless we beat back that stigma, which you just talked about briefly, again, Representative Vaught. It is really a top priority to get rid of this stigma. The three of us, along with all the fellow members of the task force, have been working with a common goal in mind. Our work will inform the development of a series of resources, including comprehensive policy frameworks for state and local policymakers to help them ensure they're addressing the mental health needs of workers. Our nation's health crisis has grown since the pandemic. According to a Kaiser Foundation report on mental health and substance use, mental health symptoms have increased from 11% in 2019 to more than 30% in 2021. Suicide is one of the leading causes of death and has increased in almost every state. 
What have you two noticed in your states over the past few years with regards to COVID-19 and mental health? And as a follow-up to that, more specifically, what have you seen as the pandemic's impact on the workforce and workplace? And we'll start with you, Representative Vaught. COVID-19 just brought to light how big, how massive mental health issues are in our states. I would say the numbers probably were a little bit damped down because people were busy. If you keep yourself busy, a lot of times you don't think about what all's going on. But once you have to slow down and you have to face those issues, face that mountain, decide you're going to climb over the mountain to the other side. I think the busyness kept people from realizing how much help they truly do need. It's sad that it took a pandemic called COVID-19 to make a lot of people set up and pay attention. I'm glad that is one of what I would consider the silver linings that came out of COVID is the fact that more people now are willing to talk about mental health issues and what we do to better serve our constituencies. I think it had a massive impact in my area because of opioids. You know, they were trying to doctor themselves and which escalated a lot of other things that were going on, which has truly hurt my workforce in my rural areas. They're having a hard time getting people to come to work or to even pass a clean drug test. So that's really sad to me that we're still dealing with COVID effects in the mental health way. I just want to be, you know, that voice that continues to scream, hey, don't worry about the stigma. Let's do everything we can to help people get well, whatever that may be. I think COVID really unveiled a lot of eyes. And I think that's the silver lining of COVID in a way. Absolutely. Representative Pittman, your thoughts? I agree with Representative Vaught completely. The stigma around mental health, the stigma around going to the doctor, getting the vaccine was huge for me in my community, in my district, where we had our elders, whether it be in my native culture or in my African-American culture, that were leaving us like flies. And so when you talk about the compounds of the pandemic, it was a healthcare shortage. It was a healthcare crisis, but then it became a financial crisis. Then it became housing because people were losing their housing and people were losing their safety net and they were losing loved ones. And then we talk about the food shortage that came out of it too. So we talk about that crisis and that trauma that has literally hit every generation. All of the kids and the babies that are in foster care now that really have no parents due to COVID. And when we talk about dealing with that level of trauma, that is unexpected. We have a whole generation that now (laughs) is dealing with the trauma and the effects of COVID-19. And what I've seen in the years following is that everybody was hands on deck during that time. But once 2021 hit and we really got back outside, it was like a lot of those resources, a lot of those thoughts, a lot of those effects dropped by the wayside. Even if we talk about how much the access to mental health care cost, If you are seeing your counselor or your therapist or your provider in 2020 or in 2021, it was free. 
2022, it went up to 10. In 2023, now it's back to $25 of copay to see a provider. And so when we talk about it creating a workforce shortage. Well, yes, people passed away and more people needed services. We didn't have the adequate training for people to go in this field. And that's where I think the apprenticeship programs that we talked about in my subcommittee are so important. We didn't have people to go into nursing. We didn't have people to go into the pipeline for behavioral health or any of it. And then you're dealing with their trauma of seeing the magnitudes of people pass away. And so I think we have done a good job of addressing it, but we have to leave it at the forefront. It can't now be like, okay, we've gotten back to life. Things have calmed down. And oh yeah, we're only going to put so much ARPA money here, but we're not going to fully fund that. That's what we're seeing in our state, too, is that we've gotten all these federal dollars to support programming, but it is a one-time budget line item. It is not sustainable, and if we are not smart about it and put it in programs or in ways where we can really invest then it's just going to be that, that one line item, almost like when your grandparents give you money to go get ice cream, it's burning a hole in your pocket for you to spend it and we spend it and then it's gone. And we haven't made a real investment that could create generational change that can really combat the trauma, the stigma and all of the things that we dealt with. We still have an employment pipeline. Our unemployment department had to overhaul how it did business because of COVID. And those are the things that we have to continue continue to look at from our states, from mental health, because it's still here and we have not seen the lasting effects of it yet. I would agree with you. And in Colorado, I would say that we saw some very significant impacts on the mental health of our community. And like you had mentioned, Representative Pittman, there were some free programs. Now the question is, how do we maintain those free programs since we've seen what free therapy can do for our community? So now I'd like to bring it home for each of us. Representative Bott, in the months leading up to the 2023 regular session, several Arkansas legislators were meeting with mental health providers, medical professionals, and behavioral health stakeholders to assess the strengths and weaknesses of the mental and behavioral health care currently available in your state. This work resulted in several recommendations and as a result, several bills were passed to improve access and quality of mental health care. Can you start with the passage of Act 513? Can I back up just a bit? Because the working group ended up being a massive group of 150 providers, state employees, DHS, the insurance company, the passes, the sheriff's offices, state police, and local mental health providers coming together all of us in a room month after month trying to figure out ways that we could move Arkansas forward. And I kept telling them the whole time, I want Arkansas to actually be the flagship of how we should do mental health for other states to look to to see how to do it. With that came Act 513, which is one of my favorite pieces because my heart is always with children. I was sexually abused, had an eating disorder very bullied in school all my life. So children are especially dear to my heart. And 513 is to support positive mental health for families with young children through the Arkansas Medicaid. So we made it where Arkansas Medicaid can now reimburse 
for mental health and behavioral health issues, even if a pediatrician is the one who is doing the screening, whereas before, you know, it has to be a counselor. It had to be somebody in that arena. But now we've made it, if it's your family doctor, if it's your pediatrician, anybody who could actually be touching those children's lives, which I think is a big thing because I truly believe we have to catch people sooner rather than later. If we catch them sooner, yes, there's money to be spent at the front. I understand that. I come from a very conservative state. But in the long run, you save money because you've helped that person to become somebody who can live in the world, who can figure out what their triggers are, who can learn how to walk themselves back down off the cliff, as some would say, so that they can live a normal life with their families in work, whether their children are in school and they're going to school activities, whatever it might be. The sooner we can catch and help people to learn how to cope or what medicines they might need even, the better off we'll be in the long run. And so this bill here was very dear to my heart because it's catching people much sooner rather than later. I couldn't agree with you more on that issue. One of the biggest issues with regards to access to care is the limited number of counselors. And more importantly, many are located in hard to reach areas. Can you now share with us how and why your state passed Act 260? The counselor compact is because we have such a shortage of counselors in our state. We have a lot of social workers, but we do not have many counselors. So we're hoping that this will help bring some of those counselors that like live on our border states, uh, which would be Texas, Tennessee, Missouri, those areas, Louisiana, maybe they can help fill some areas that we need where it comes to counseling. I'm pretty excited about that. I hope that it will work the way I think it should or could, even if it's used through telemedicine. So I'm pretty excited about Act 260. Looking at the list here, Arkansas has been very active when it comes to mental health. How about sharing some other approved forms of legislation? We did Act 316, which is a depression screening for birthing mothers. I think a lot of times birthing mothers that have so much on their plate, trying to get ready for the new baby that a lot of times we only think of it being postpartum when in reality it could be going on during the pregnancy. That was one of them that I felt was very important that we start to really enact sooner whenever it comes to our birthing mothers. We also worked on our bed space. We didn't have enough beds. We don't have enough beds, whether it's students or whether it is adults. So what we did this time was we passed a bill that would help us work on our bed shortage in our state. Next session, we hope to do something about the adult bed space. Also in Act 494, we required the Arkansas Medicaid program and insurance policies to reimburse for behavioral health services. That's something they had not been doing in the past. So this is something that we felt was very important to get people more healthy. So I'm pretty excited about all those pieces. Lots of amazing work. Thank you, Representative Vaught, for all those insights. Now we're going to transition to your neighbor to the West. Based on 2020 data, Oklahoma has some of the highest rates for mental illness and substance use disorders. However, there seems to be a lot of progress in your state with regards to new legislation. Representative Pittman, 
Can you tell us about the First Responders Bill, HB 2398? If signed into law, this legislation would go into effect right around Thanksgiving. Yes, yes. And I can tell you our legislative session just ended. And so we are finally finished. And the bills, unless they have an emergency, all of our bills do go into effect in November. But if a bill has an emergency on it, it goes into effect July 1st. And so House Bill 2398 is by Representative Hayes of the House and Senator Racino of the Senate, it was a bill about workers' compensation and really providing expansion of the workers' compensation around mental health for first responders. And so it put limits on the time frame for disability claims. It put limits on the definition of what disability benefits could be, but it helps those who are affected by mental health on the job who have to put in workers' compensation complaints to whether they had an injury or whether they suffered PTSD, whatever they're dealing with, it really has opened up the scope of what a firefighter or emergency medical technician can really say by definition is going on. And it has really added in some good mental health language that would allow them to be able to receive workers' compensation as it pertains to mental health illnesses. So important. How about House Bill 2175? House Bill 2175 is really by Roe and Racino as well, and it is a behavioral health workforce development bill. It is one that would address workforce shortages within our community and within our state. And that is what we were talking about within our workforce subcommittee. We wanted programs just like this that would create a revolving fund for the shortage and that would create access for people to have that loan forgiveness and that loan reimbursement. And so that's what that bill does. And we're excited to see it. I co-authored it to show support for it. And we want to make sure that more of those bills come that create expanding licensure cohorts to increase the number of clinicians at master's level and above and developing training, recruitment, and supervision capacity. That is literally what we discussed in our cohort. It looks like another piece of legislation is moving towards the Senate, another healthcare worker bill, HB 2154. Can you share a little about this one? This bill really expands the protection for healthcare workers, for healthcare employees, independent contractors, technician from assault, from people suffering from behavioral health illnesses. And this really gives parameters. We've had some instances here where we know sometimes people with diagnoses can be violent. And so this gives more protections for those people working in those areas. And I think that's important to discuss. As we ask more people to get in this field, we have to do a better job of, like we said, advocating for them, advising them, offering them protections, but pay scale and talking about burnout, but also talking about protecting them while they're in this environment because it is heavy and it can be hard and it can be dangerous. And so this bill really does a good job of adding those protections. And before we go on, I have another bill that I would like to mention as well. It's Senate Bill 844. And this bill is helpful for mental health workforce by creating 
a continuity for safety. It's a investment fund. And so it provides funds for county services. It provides access to services on a county level and a local level. And so a lot of times when we do things at the state level, we have to make sure we're trickling them down to the county level, the city level, and the local level so that we can expand our reach as we talk about access. And so SB 844 is another piece of legislation that has really done that as far as expanding access to the mental health workforce by creating that continuity with county levels and creating a fund to do that. Thank you, Representative Pittman. It's great to see both Oklahoma and Arkansas advancing legislation to improve the lives of those affected by a mental health condition. As for Colorado, we've been hard at work too. When I think about prevalence, I think about the current data. I recently saw that close to 20% of Coloradans are living with some kind of mental illness. I also understand that currently places us as third highest in the country. The good news, we're doing a lot to change patient outcomes. However, I'm not going to gloss over the issue. The problem is especially bad when it comes to our children's mental health. As a result, we started a program called I Matter, which provides free therapy for any school-aged youth who wants it in Colorado. All they have to do is go to the website imattercolorado.org and fill a short 16-question screener. And if they screen for therapy, they get a list of therapists so that they can schedule their own therapy appointment. We thought that giving kids the opportunity to take control of their therapy and provide it for free by removing all barriers to entry for our kids, that we would see more kids get in to help. And what we've seen so far is over 8,500 kids have used the program and we've been in every Colorado county except five. And this year we passed a bill to allow for schools to do those screenings that I mentioned before in school so that you have an actual screening with a person and you have interaction with that person so that you have a more warm handoff to that therapy than from a computer screen. On a positive note, Colorado is ranked 17th for access overall and 8th in terms of the number of people with mental illness who also have insurance. And that is important because in 2021, I passed a bill, House Bill 1068, which provides for free mental health annual wellness checkups. So if you provide insurance in Colorado, you are required to provide a free 45 to 60 minute annual mental health checkup with a qualified mental health care provider for free, no copay, no coinsurance. So we hope people will start getting into the regular cycle of getting an annual mental health wellness exam, just like they have an annual physical. Because as we were talking about earlier, getting ahead of the problem is clearly the way to reduce the amount of crisis that we're seeing in our community. It's great to see all the work being done to address mental health on the state and local levels. How about we discuss how our legislatures are expanding access to care through mental health parity and non-discrimination laws? Representative Vaught? I think that we have worked really well with both sides of the aisle to try to make sure that we're not forgetting any one group of people whenever we're talking about mental health and what we can do to give them better access and to help them uh, become a healthier them. Absolutely. And what about you, Representative Pittman? 
we talk a lot in Oklahoma about rural communities and trying to do a really good job of including those rural communities. But what I've also seen is us try really hard to not discriminate against people who already have an illness. And so someone who's already mentally ill, who's alcohol dependent, who's drug dependent, and really saying, how can we serve those people too? And how can we not just automatically throw them by the wayside and really looking at how we give them services, not just getting the people who are really just now presenting symptoms or just now engaging with a mental illness, but those people who really are struggling with this illness. And like I said, mentally ill, codependent, alcohol dependent, or have suffered from a disability. How can we make sure we are doing things for them as well? Can I add? Absolutely. So in Arkansas, we did, she brought back to my memory, we did pass a bill where we did a specialty court so we don't have those people necessarily going to prison. Maybe we can get them into the jail, but actually getting them to where they can get the help that they need. And we did pass that bill in the state this past session. Excellent. Now I'd like to provide some time for closing statements. Representative Pittman, we can start with you. Wow. To sum this up, this has been such an amazing experience being a part of the task force as a whole, going to both meetings, meeting people from legislators, from the private sector to the National Department of Labor and Disability and Workforce Development, people who really care about this mission, people who are champions for mental health and substance abuse and all the things, people who have stories and have experiences like Representative Vought who are willing to share them and come to the table to figure out what we can do. My great-grandmother used to say something to me all the time, and it was that we must be willing to plant seeds for trees whose shades we may never sit under. And I think that is so fitting for the conversation that we're having today and for the meaning of our task force. As we do this work and as we develop this framework and this legislative agenda that will go into these states in multiple states throughout the country, not just in Arkansas or in Oklahoma, but in Georgia, in Mississippi, we had elected officials from everywhere. So as we introduce these frameworks to our country, we are planting seeds. We are creating change for people who we may never get to meet. And that is the work that we do. And that is what we lend our talent and our time to each and every day as we serve our communities, as we serve our states. But I think a lot of times people don't understand that as a state representative, I'm not just serving House District 99 and I'm not just serving in 2023. I am serving for the whole state I am serving nationally and I am serving for generations to come. And so we have to continue to plant those seeds. And I'm so honored to be a part of the SEED, the NCSL, the CSG Mental Health Task Force. And thank you for women in government for always supporting us and always lending opportunities for us to be a part of the important work as well. And as women to get to do this work and really focusing and shining a spotlight on us. So thank you so much. I will continue to be a champion for mental health and advocacy, and I will definitely continue to be a champion for women in government. Thank you so much for having me. Representative Vaught, what are your final thoughts? First, I do want to thank you for having me on the podcast to discuss such an important topic, a topic that's you know personally important to me. 
that means a lot. When we started our working group here in Arkansas, I called NCSL or I had one of the staffers call and say, hey, why don't y'all have a working group going on mental health? All of these states are trying to figure this out by themselves. Why aren't we coming together as a think tank? And because of that, SEED and NCSL and CSG coming together to bring this working group together was was a positive thing coming out of that phone call. So I was excited to be a part of it and get to be present and deep into discussion. Like she said a minute ago, we were all around the table trying to come up with the best ideas, those frameworks that we could move forward in other states, not just our own. I think about when we're by ourselves, we're a lot less likely to be heard. When we come together like this, as state legislators or as local governments or even as seed women in government, whatever it might be, I think that's when change really starts to take place and people start to pay attention and to listen to what you're saying and what's going on. I think that's what this working group actually brought was a big shining light that we needed for our states. And it brought framework and discussion and those kind of things that are important because it's like she said, we're not just governing for now, we're governing for the future. I say this all the time, mental health is a moving target. You'll never have it all figured out. We have to be agile and willing to move the way that it's moving and in the direction that it's moving if we want to try to better serve our constituents. And it's been an honor. It's been a true honor to be a part of the group. And thank you all for allowing me to be on the podcast. Thank you both for sharing your wisdom on such an important topic. According to the CDC, over half of Americans are diagnosed with a mental health condition at some point in their lives. And one in five will experience a mental health condition in a given year. These are more than numbers and statistics. These are the faces of our neighbors, friends, and family members. For that very reason alone, it's important for state and local lawmakers like us to work on policy and strategies that lead to the best and most promising practices that advance legislation which supports, promotes, and enriches the lives of those living with a mental health condition. Thank you for listening to the Women in Government podcast. For more information, please visit womeningovernment.org. You've been listening to the Women in Government podcast, a resource made available for those interested in discussing important issues and policies of the day. For more information, please visit our website at womeningovernment.org.